Well, several weeks ago, uh, Pastor Rob had a, a good idea uh, that we should uh, start 2023 with two sermons, um, and, and so that'll be this week and next week, um, that ask some, some pretty big questions that are important for all of us. Uh, the first question goes something like, well, what does it mean to be a faithful Christian in 2023? That'll be what we focus on this week individually. What does it mean for me, Nate, for you individually to be a faithful Christian in the coming year? And then next week, uh, Pastor Rob is going to preach on what does it mean for us to be a faithful church, a community um, of faithfulness to the Lord in 2023. Now, there are whole books uh, that are written to answer these kinds of questions of what does it mean to be a faithful Christian? What does it mean to be a faithful church? And so we certainly cannot say everything in two weeks, uh, but we think we can say something. And we, we pray and we hope that uh, the something that we meditate on from the Scriptures this week and next week will give you a kind of renewed vision for the coming year, that time will not just pass um, unmetered or, um, you know, just day after day unnoticed, but that you will, you will receive a fresh sense from the Lord of, okay, we're headed into a new year, and it matters who I follow. It matters um, what our church does and, and what we ascribe to as, as a body. And so um, that's going to be the focus this week, next week. Then we'll return to our normal preaching series. Now, I use the word renewed on purpose. We, we want to renew our vision of what it means to be a faithful Christian, a faithful church, uh, because we do not certainly want to somehow develop a new vision, right? We, we're not looking to be inventors. We're not looking to come up with something that no one has ever heard before, and, and this will somehow motivate you and attract you. Um, to live certain ways in oriented toward Jesus. No, we want to um, not be inventors when we turn to the Bible. We want to be more like archaeologists. We want to discover the old truths, the, the old ways that have just given followers of Jesus passion and um, faith and, and bravery for years and years. That's what we want to tap into. Perhaps some of these old truths are forgotten by us or lost or overlooked. But we want that old fire and we want the same kind of bold sacrifice and courageous love that even those early disciples had. That's what we're, we're looking for. And so I just thought it appropriate this morning as we think about, well, what does it mean for us to be faithful followers of Christ? We should turn the whole way back to those first followers, the very first disciples, what motivated them? What was Jesus' initial interaction with them? What was his calling to them? And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to read four texts now together. Uh, our main preaching text will be from Matthew chapter 4. Uh, verses 17 through 23, and this is the first instance we see in the Gospels of Jesus calling someone else to follow him. That'll be the first text. The second text will be Matthew 9, uh, chap verses 9 through 13, where we hear Jesus issue a very similar call to a disciple named Matthew. He's the writer of this Gospel account. Then we'll fast forward to Matthew chapter 19, where uh Jesus has an interaction with a rich young ruler and listen for those words again, follow me. 
And then we'll conclude with Matthew chapter 28, which is Jesus' parting words after having gone to the cross and risen from the grave. What now does he uh, tell his followers? He tells them the Great Commission, which is just a summary of following him. And so let's go ahead and read those texts, and then we'll uh, meditate on them. Matthew four seventeen to 23. <clears throat> From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two older brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat, with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are, are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is Matthew 19, beginning with verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen to 20 But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, as we go back to Jesus' first disciples and his call to follow them, where his, his call to them to follow him, uh, we're provided with a really simple bare-bones account from Matthew, are we not? If we think about what Sharon read, or if your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 4, uh, th this isn't one of those stories where there are lots of details to get lost in. Uh, we don't find cryptic parables that require deep reflection. 
There's uh, the bit about fishers of men, and, and we'll get to that, but the, the main message that Jesus speaks to Andrew and Peter, and presumably the same thing he said to James and John, is, is essentially this, follow me. And as we heard, uh, e- even in the Gospel of Matthew itself, the, the call to follow is not unique to only these four men. It's not like he only went up to these four and said these words. Um, there are actually five different times, we read a few of them, but I'm going to give you the whole list here in a second. There are five different times where Jesus highlights the call to follow him. And so what I, what I want us to understand is, is we're way back at the beginning, but this develops into a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew, the other Gospels, the New Testament as a whole. Here are the five times it comes up um, in Matthew. This is in addition to our text. So we read from chapter 9 where Jesus finds the, the man Matthew, the, the author of this account, and we read in verse 9 that Jesus said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Very similar to chapter 4, right, with the four fishermen. Then we read in chapter 19, the rich young ruler who, who insists, hey, I've kept all the law. I've done what Moses has required. Is there anything else I need to do, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? Well, he says, go sell what you possess and then come follow me. We'd read in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, that Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He says something similar again in chapter 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up, up his, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. And, and then we, we get in chapter 8 of Matthew, we see a couple of people who make excuses. Well, Lord, I, I hear what you're saying, but I can't follow you for this reason, or I can't follow you for that reason. There's one uh, man who says that, well, I can't follow you um, because I, I need to go bury my dead father. And yet, even in this case, which we might think, okay, well, he has, he has a decent case. You know, we're told to honor our father and mother, but Jesus elevates the call to follow him even above that. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And so it's just clear, even just with a, a simple search across the, the gospel of Matthew, how prime it is, how important it is to Jesus for people to hear this message. Follow me. The the story in chapter 4 about Andrew, Peter, James, and John, this isn't an isolated story. If you had lived around the Sea of Galilee in these days as Jesus walked and taught, you would have heard him say this a lot, I think. Uh, the gospel writers don't record everything that Jesus said. How could they in the few pages that they've written? And so for something like this to jump out five or six times, he must have been saying this all the time. And so the phrase, follow me, was just part and parcel to Jesus' ministry. Now before we move on, I want us to notice what this call is not. Because Jesus does not go up to these four fishermen. He doesn't go up to Andrew and Peter, James and John, and says, well, listen, what you really need to do, you need to get your act together. What what are you doing here among this, this lake? What are you doing here trying to piece together some business? You need to get your act together. He doesn't go up to them and, and give them a long creed of, here are the ten things you need to believe. You, you need the right theology. 
He doesn't talk about giving money or, or doing any kind of good work. He doesn't give the disciples a to-do list at all. The content of his call is, follow me. Now, I, th- I think what we can uh, deduce from this is that Jesus' call, what, what it means to follow Jesus at, at its core, is a relational element. Without relationship to Jesus, these men could not do what Jesus called them to do. Now, now, sure, apart from Jesus, apart from actually walking with him, they could try to be obedient to his moral teaching. They could hear what he's commanded and say, well, I'm going to go try to do that. They could even try to study his claims theologically to try to have an accurate understanding of the gospel and the kingdom. Um, But they cannot follow Jesus without what? Without leaving where they were, moving with him and following him, being at his side, relating to him for those three years. I just want to bring that up at the outset because as we consider what does it mean for us to follow Jesus, we have to recognize that there are so many people out in the world who interpret following Jesus as just kind of having a kind of life philosophy that is somehow compatible with Jesus' moral teaching or, or perhaps believing right theology. If I have the right theology, then I must be following Jesus. And yet when you ask them, well, what do you think of Jesus? What, what have you seen him do recently? What do you love about him? It's like their mind goes blank. This is not what Jesus is asking these disciples to do. He's not, that's not what he's asking us to do. He's asking us to follow him, to have relationship with him, to know him and be known by him. Uh, I don't know if this is a good illustration because I can't really imagine my son doing this, but if, if I told my son, hey, hey, son, follow me into the living room. I want to show you something. And he kind of sat back and thought, well, Dad's probably going to show me, uh, you know, the toys that are all over the living room floor. And then he's probably going to tell me that, hey, my room is a mess too. And so I'm just going to go up to my room and clean up my mess while I'm there waiting in the living room. Has he done what I've asked him to do? Is, is he following me? Is he with me? He's not. And yet I would propose that in some ways, this is what Christians are at times tempted to do. We're tempted to hear the call to follow and kind of extrapolate out that, well, here's probably what Jesus wants me to do, or here's probably what he wants me to believe, and we boil it down to a creed or we boil it down to a deed, but in the end, our relationship is paper thin. We don't know him. And that's not what Jesus is talking about with these guys. He makes it really simple. He makes it really clear. Hey, guys, come with me. Leave what you're doing. Come with me. Know me. Let me speak into your life. Let's have conversations. Let's do things together. The content of the call is relational. True theology and personal holiness, oh, they'll come later. They're really important. Don't hear me saying that these that creed and deed are not important. They are very important, but they flow out of this essential relationship of follower in Christ. He calls us to follow him. 
That is the essence of the call that we see here in Matthew chapter 4. Now that beckons a question. If that's the content of the call, who is the caller? Who is this man inviting these fishermen into relationship with him? Who is it that invites us into relationship with him? And so if point one is the call, point two is the caller. Let's take a few moments and consider who is it that stands before these men? If you've uh, closed your Bible, would you open it back up with me to uh, Matthew chapter 4? Because I want you to actually see something in the text. You, it, it'll be there if you have a print Bible. It'll be there if, if your Bible's electronic. Just go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 4. It can dramatically change uh, the way you read the Bible and the way that you see the Bible by how you read it. Uh, in most modern Bibles... Uh, the editors will group certain verses into sections and give them little titles, headings. And so in, in my Bible, and probably in yours, I would guess, in, if I look at Matthew 4, it groups verse, the editors have grouped verses 18 to 22, and they've provided the heading, Jesus calls the first disciples. Do you have something similar in your Bible? It's grouped together. Is that the same grouping? Does anybody have a different grouping? Just out of curiosity. Okay, great. So we're all looking at at a similar thing. 18 to 22, Jesus calls the first disciples, which is great. We might sit down, we might come to this text, maybe in our daily reading or in a sermon like this, and we think, oh, great, this is what goes together. But we have to realize whenever we come to any text that the original authors did not write it to be broken up like this. They didn't even put chapter numbers or verse numbers with it. The way Matthew wrote his gospel account was he intended it to be read from beginning to end, uh, all in one sitting. And so what we have to do when we read our Bible, we can't just chunk it up. We can't uh, make it these kind of fortune cookie, cookie passages and take them in isolation. We have to read them in a connected way. And so you may have noticed that this morning when Sharon read, she didn't read 18 to 22. She read 17 to 23. Because I think when we add one verse to the beginning and we add one verse to the end, it dramatically changes the scope of this passage. It dramatically changes what we are reading. If, if, you, if you scan down and you only read 18 to 22, you'd be left with what? Mostly a message about fishermen and the call to follow. And you might think, okay, well, that's what this passage is all about. It's, it's telling people they better buck up, they better get in line, and they better follow Jesus, bar none. But, but look for a minute at verse 17 and at verse 23. Verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. And then we read the chunk in 18 to 22. And then in 23, we read, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that Jesus is doing something much grander than just building a following. This passage is not saying, buck up and get in line and follow Jesus. It's meant to show 
the man that is standing before these men saying, come on, follow me. Jesus believed that he was bringing God's kingdom to earth. I mean, isn't that plain in verse 17 when he summarized, Matthew summarizes Jesus' teaching as repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent uh, simply means turning away from a lifestyle of sin. Uh, we know that because if you flip back to Matthew 3, John the Baptist said the same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he baptized those, quote, who confessed their sins. And so repentance is turning away from sin. But what is the reason that Jesus gives that his hearers should repent? We might think, well, we repent so that we aren't condemned to hell. We repent so that we receive forgiveness. And those things are true, but they're not what Jesus says here. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't that interesting? Repent, not so that something bad doesn't happen. Repent because something is here. Namely, the kingdom of heaven. Now, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it might jog all kinds of questions to us, like what exactly is he talking about? Is he, is he talking about a present reality? Is he talking about a future reality? When's it going to come? Are there going to be streets of gold? Like, what's it going to be like? But, but for the hearers, for Andrew, Peter, James, and John, this phrase, kingdom of heaven, was just loaded with meaning. Because it's loaded with meaning throughout the whole Hebrew Bible. The, the tradition of these men were that they were looking for the kingdom of heaven. Andrew, Peter, James, and John knew from their people's historical writings, from their scriptures, that God had indeed once lived with mankind in a garden in the land of Eden. And if you want more information on that, refresh on that, just go to the opening pages of your Bible, page 1, 2, and 3. It's, it's all there. But because humanity decided to go their own way, a separation was put between humans and God, and the kingdom of heaven was no longer on earth. There was separation. Where God was, people were not. Where people were, God did not dwell in the same way. This was because of sin. Now humanity was at odds with God. They weren't cooperating anymore. There was division, separation. And as a result of being at odds with God, our world was filled with every kind of disease and affliction, everything from the common cold to deadly blizzards in Buffalo. These are the things that you experience firsthand, the things that you read about in the headlines, all because of our separation from God and the presence of sin. And yet, in spite of this separation between God and humanity, the biblical writers often foretold a promised Messiah who would reunite God and humanity again. This was the, the hope of the Israelites. This was the hope of Andrew, Peter, James, and John. This Messiah is the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. He's the promised offspring of Abraham who would bring blessing to every family on earth, Genesis 22.18. 
He is the promised son of David who would replace just the unending line of selfish, power-hungry kings and rulers of earth. He would instead rule with perfect justice, equity, righteousness forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7. There was a prophecy that this Messiah would be born of a virgin, right? We're familiar with this most likely, Isaiah 7, 14. And Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they would have been familiar with Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 6. This is a, a, a verse that you may have even heard read this Christmas. For unto us a child is born. Speaking of the child of the virgin birth, unto us a son is given. And what did these fishermen know? Jesus was baptized. And what did everybody hear from heaven? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. What government? Kingdom of heaven. The very kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. As Americans, our, our country is not even 250 years old. And so it's, it's probably almost impossible for us to think of an illustration of what it would be like to wait 2,000 plus years of anticipation and longing like these men had for their Messiah. For thousands of years, they were desperate, longing, waiting for the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of their nation to be restored. And yet, here comes this man. Rumor has it, he's born of a virgin. Rumor has it, he is the divine son. And what message is he proclaiming? Kingdom of heaven's at hand. And so as Jesus shows up to these four fishermen and says, follow me, there's all of this going off in their minds. This guy is it. This guy is what we've been waiting for. This guy is what, who's going to make things right. And when we look at what immediately comes after, they, you know, they follow, they, they believe, they go with him. And how long do they have to wait until the kingdom starts breaking out? One verse. Verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He's it. Jesus is it. This man has the power to back up his message. God's kingdom is here because God's king, the Messiah, Jesus is here. That's what these men saw. And so do you see how reading verses 18 through 22 in just the context of one more verse at the beginning and one more verse at the end just gives us all of this meaning into who it is that stands here. Who it is that's saying, hey guys, <laughs> follow me. The kingdom's breaking out. It's here. The thing you've longed for is here. Come be a part of it. Follow me. That's what's happening in verses 18 through 22. That's what Andrew, Peter, James, and John are enlisted into, being a part of that kingdom coming to earth. 
And I think when we see all of that, it just makes this account so much more compelling, does it not? Because here, here's the true king. Here's, here's the one who will make all things right in the world. And, and he's calling people not, not to flex his muscles, not to, um, just, just make himself look great. He's, he's calling people to include them. See how his heart is displayed. Is, is there any other king like this? Is there any other ruler that you've heard like this? Jesus came personally. You see, in ancient days, the, the great kings, they didn't come themselves. They sent their generals. They sent their assistants. And it, here's the king of the universe in the flesh before these men establishing his kingdom personally. He's signed up. He's involved. He's there. And, and then when he comes, he doesn't come to priests and princes. He comes to fishermen. He, he, he skips over the high and the mighty of the day. And he comes for the lowly. Fishermen here, tax collectors in chapter 9, prostitutes later, the poor, you name it. The people who, who the mighty of the world skip over are not passed over by this king. He comes to them. He invites them to join him. You know, if you think about a powerful individual... They, they showcase their power by doing it all themselves, right? By having great accomplishments by themselves. That's why it's so rare for a great athlete to like be really proud of the number of assists he gave to other people. No, they want to boast in how many points they've scored, right? Because that showcases their greatness. Not Jesus. He, he could have come and brought this kingdom all by himself. He has the power. He doesn't need the help. Here he is. He's beckoning others to follow, to share in the joy of seeing this kingdom come to earth. And he doesn't just enlist them as if, well, well, guys, I'll do the real work. You take on some menial task. I'll give you a secondary role. He invites them to do the very thing he's doing. Did you notice that? What did Jesus just do to these men? He fished them. He fished them into the kingdom, away from their nets, away from their earthly families. Hey, come on, be included. And what's he signing them up to do? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's no secondary task. You're getting caught up into the very cause of the kingdom. The very thing I'm doing, I'm sharing with you. And then he empowers them for the task. <laughs> he, he doesn't say, all right, guys, here's, here's what we're starting. I'm giving you two weeks. Go try to find as many people as you can. You get more than 15, you're in. Go see what you can do. And then come back and, and we'll talk. No, he says, did you catch that? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's calling them to trust in his promises and his power. He's not sending them out to um, spend their strength and their resources for him. He doesn't need their resources and strength. He's showcasing his power through them. This is the guy that stands before these fishermen and says, follow me. Come on, brothers. Let's bring in the kingdom. What is the response? 
talked about the call, the caller. How do these men respond when Jesus of Nazareth, God's Messiah, calls them to be part of his kingdom on earth? Well, they, they follow him. They enlist. Also, not, not a tricky part, right? We, we read it. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They went. Very similar language is used for each set of brothers. So if you look at verse 20, Andrew and Peter says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. You skip down to verse 22, James and John, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And there are, there are two strong commonalities from these verses, right? They sound a lot the same. There, there are some common elements. The, the first common element is the immediacy of their response. Matthew makes sure to tell us that both sets of brothers immediately followed him. Uh, There was no deliberation. Uh, There was no, well, let me think about it. There was no buildup. Jesus didn't invite them to read his blog posts of 10 reasons why you should follow me. Um, he, He simply comes and is compelling and says, follow me. And they're like, we're in. You've got us. We're there. And then Matthew also highlights the cost. For Andrew and Peter, they left their nets, we're told. And James and John left the boat and their father to follow him. Now, here's here's what I make of those two similarities. Here's what I think Matthew is trying to draw out. Because the the gospel writers, I mean, they're covering three years of history. So they're, they're choosing their words carefully. These are brief accounts. And yet when they choose to reiterate such common words, they're, they're trying to get something to us. They're trying to make sure we see something. Here's what I think Matthew is stressing. I think he's making it clear that following Jesus will always cost you something. It may cost you your profession. It may cost you some relationships. It will certainly cost you your time. Matthew is not here sugarcoating the reality that to follow Jesus means that we leave other things, right? We we, we can't have what we consider our normal life, add on Jesus, and just expect that to go well. He's not icing on the cake. He's, He's the whole cake. He's it. But I think the immediacy that we see from both of these men is Matthew's way of telling us that despite whatever it may cost, following Jesus is always worth it. It always pays off. He's simply that compelling. He's simply that good. These men didn't have other revenue streams. In this day and age, fishermen were the poor. So they didn't have a savings account to rely on. They didn't have some side hustle that was bringing them money in on the side. They left every dime that they were making to follow him. And they left their family. Do do you realize in this culture how important family was? And they left it. And they left it not because someone pushed them and pressured them, but because a man, the likes of whom they had never seen, doing things that they could barely believe, showed up before them and invited them and said, come do it with me. Come follow me. I 
I think it was Ryan alluded to it uh, as we were singing, and I know uh, it was mentioned back when we were praying before the service too. Um, there's there's a time later in John's gospel where uh, just the, the compelling nature of Jesus on these men is really highlighted. And it comes not when things are going well. It comes when things are going very badly. Um, their ministry is dwindling. Uh, their friends are... are um, hitting the abort button and leaving them, abandoning them. And Jesus turns to uh, the 12, which would have included these four men, and, and, and Jesus says, well, are, are you two going to leave? And Peter, same Peter from Matthew chapter 4, says the following. He looks Jesus in the face and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's saying, Lord, I've seen you and I've been with you. I can't just go back to my old way of life. I've seen so much. I can't even imagine life without you. That would be like seeing color and going back to black and white. It would be like hearing a symphony and then being deaf. It's not living life without you. Where else shall I go? I think that's what Matthew is trying to communicate, is just what following Jesus is like. It's to be so shaken and so overjoyed at who he is and what he does that based on what we see, we're willing to leave everything if necessary to follow him because he's better than everything else. Jesus himself spoke of being part of this kingdom and he put it like this. It's one of his shortest parables later in Matthew chapter 13. He says the kingdom of heaven. So this is the kingdom that he's saying is here. This is the kingdom that he's inviting these men and us to join him in. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found and covered up. And then, not simply because he knew it was the right thing to do, not because he knew it was his duty, but in his joy, there's the motivation. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an invitation to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's an invitation to follow Messiah Jesus by trusting that when he died on the cross, he paid your full way and mine into this kingdom. He came personally. He didn't send you a delegate. He didn't send you a general. He came for you. And he came for you, <laughs> Not the kings and queens, not the senators and representatives, not the business owners and the rich. He came for you and me, lowly you and me. He invites you to join him, to share in the bounty of his kingdom, not as a remedial second-rate worker, but to be a very fisher of men and women, to enjoy and know what it is like to see the kingdom growing one soul at a time. The, the friends that you have, the family members that you have, 
are not just there to bless you. All of them are opportunities to see this kingdom expand. There are opportunities to see men and women fished out of a lost and dying world that is passing away and into the kingdom of light. If you're a Christian, that's what we are enlisted for. That is what we get the joy of doing. And so as you think ahead to your next year, as you think ahead to 2023, maybe you're, you're planning uh, goals, maybe you're making resolutions, Maybe you're even planning vacations. Think about, pray about, Lord, what does it mean for me to follow you this year? Now, again, remember, it's not asking for a to-do list. He calls us into relationship. Follow me. Where is he at work in your life? Where is he at work in your workplace? Where is he at work in your neighborhood? And as we read this book, if if you don't know, ask him, Lord, would you show me? I want to follow you. I don't just want to do right things. I don't just want to believe right things. I want to be with you. I want to see you work like these men did when he went through Galilee and healed people. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like? I want to see that. Following Jesus might cost you in 2023. There might be unexpected surprises. There might be things that you don't wish for. There might be things that you do not um, want to happen in following Jesus. But I, I, I guarantee you, based on everything that these early disciples witnessed, everything that they gave, and yet had no regrets, that if you follow Jesus If I follow Jesus, we will be here next year. If he does not return, we will be here next year. We will have no regrets for our year. We will see him come through again and again and again and again. And so let's go to him in prayer now. Asking that he would lead us, that we would follow him, be known as followers of him, whatever the cost. Lord, I am confronted by this passage and I've been confronted by it all week just with the greatness of the invitation and the um, half-heartedness so often of my following. And Lord, I, I just confess that um, there is much to be desired in how I follow you. And I pray that this week and this year, you would help me see you as, as these fishermen saw you. That you would give me greater sight and greater appreciation for who it is that calls and beckons, Nate, follow me. Lord, would you give us hungerings and thirstings to see your kingdom come? Would you help us uh, just reorient everything um, that exists in our life to being about you and following you? And Lord, for any here who have never followed you, Lord, whether they are young, whether they are old or anywhere in between, Lord, I, I just pray that you would in this moment seem so compelling to them 
that they wouldn't want to go anywhere else, that we would not want to be with anyone else, pursuing anything else, doing anything else than following you, Lord. 